how does this work? And so this is what's going to get tackled today. But before we tackle that, we have got to deal with literally a very difficult scripture. By the way, there is no easing into this. It is verse 4, and it just hammers. I'm just telling you, I want to, well, let, me, let me take a little side note. I am aware that when we get a room this large, there are theological bases of what it means about people who believe once saved, always saved, or what happens when somebody is saved, and can you lose your salvation, and can you walk through these issues. Let me say this to you. I am a person who has studied Scripture. By the way, you are able in today's age to go online and have access to resources I could only dream of, honestly, when I was going through Bible college. You have access to you know, commentaries. You have access to books. You can read, you can study, and you can find what, where you stand. I am going to take you through where God has led me through Scripture. That does not mean you can't say, hey, Jeff. I have people say, hey, I kind of see that Scripture differently. Great. Study that. Work through that. Because I believe the wrestling of, with Scripture is beautiful. And so I want you to understand we're going to walk through where I believe the, reader, the, the writer of Hebrews is speaking. But you can say, hey, wait a minute, but what about this and what about that? Those are great conversations. At the end of the day, the, what we're talking about those are those who have accepted Christ and are moving towards Jesus, and we're going to be looking at that. So I'm giving you enough of an intro. Have fun with this one. Email me if you want. Here we go. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 12. Here we go. For it is impossible in case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and have fallen away to restore them again to repentance." since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So we read this, and this writer in Hebrews is saying, it is impossible for those who have tasted, walked with, experienced, that if they have fallen away. Now I'm going to give you the concept here. The phrase that scares us is this phrase, fallen away. The reason why is the American church, we use this phrase differently than what the Hebrew writer would have said when he wrote these words. Falling away, we would almost put that into the backsliding category. That's kind of how we, we can almost use that interchangeably in our culture. Someone's fallen away, they've backslidden, they kind of got off course for a little while. And so you read this and you get scared like, oh my gosh, if someone falls away, they can't come back. It is impossible. They can't do these things. That is not this falling away that is found in the book of Hebrews. The best way to say that is the word apostasy. Apostasy is not falling away. Apostasy is this, a public denial of a previously held religious belief and a distancing from the community that holds to it. The term is almost always applied uh, pejoratively, carrying connotations of rebellion, betrayal, treachery, and faithlessness. You understand? That is huge. That is not someone who um, backslid. By the way, so let's get into scripture of why that is. If you look at Peter, Peter denies Christ, and yet God restores him, right? Because in that moment, he's in this very stressful moment. Do you know Jesus? No. Do you know Jesus? No. Do you know Jesus? Right? 
in that moment. And yet Jesus comes back and restores him and says, hey, feed my sheep. Also, you can't go to the falling away person of someone like the prodigal son. The prodigal son comes home, by the way, doing some pretty nasty things. And yet the father wraps his arms around them. The difference of apostasy is this concept of someone who is publicly, is making this disconnection, is making a mockery of the death of Christ, is making a mockery of the belief in the cross and what it's about. It is a public betrayal of what's going on. Folks, that is not falling away as we understand it. Does that make sense? It is a much larger step. And what's saying is for someone to take that stance and to do those things so dramatically, then this author is saying it is impossible for them to experience repentance again. Now, again, the arguments will come back, well, that person was never a believer in the first place. But again, if you read through this passage, it says they have tasted, had the Holy Spirit, had the Holy Spirit be in there. Those are all signs of salvation. So in this concept, again, we have to remember what's going on in the people of this time. We're going to hear about the fact that these are people that were having, by the way, their possessions taken, their land taken. These are people under persecution. And I believe that there were people that they're talking about who, by the way, professed Christ when it was good for them, but when all of a sudden it became tough, all of a sudden were more than willing to denounce Christ, by the way, publicly and making a mockery of the cross. So let me share share something with you that Jesus even speaks to this in a way that I think is important for us to talk about. Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 38. This is Jesus speaking. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That is a huge action. By the way, one of the things that we can do in Christianity is read very powerful, life-changing verses, and they almost become platitudes and things we put on our bumper stickers. Does that make sense? To deny myself, take up my cross, and follow him. To take up your cross meant that you were walking to death. That's a big statement. These are big, heavyweight statements that Jesus is using here. And again, these are not bumper sticker platitudes. This is what it means to follow him. Deny yourself, take up your cross. For, um, here we go. Um, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Meaning when it comes down to it, it comes down to you saying, I'm willing to lose this life on earth to save my life in eternity. Which by the way means that's a devotion that is deeper than just coming on Sunday. That's a devotion that is deeper than why I have the faith because my parents believed or I have the faith because I'm an American. This is a deeper context of what is going on. Verse 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul. For what can man give in return for his soul? can't buy your way in. You can't good your way in. And so in this place, we're left to this place of grace. But watch verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Look what, I want you to see what Jesus is doing here. Whoever is ashamed of me and this adulterous 
and civil generation, meaning you're going to go align with something that you know is wrong, you know is sinful, you know is adulterous, and yet you are going to be ashamed of me. Watch what he says. Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Folks, that is Jesus Christ saying some heavy words. If you're going to choose an adulterous and simple generation, then I'll be ashamed of you when I come with my angels. Jesus is trying to divide the lines and go, look, by the way, this is the same, right, concept of lukewarm, whether you're either hot or cold. Lukewarm is the worst. Have you ever sat in a lukewarm bath? Ugh. Man, either let it be cold and refreshing, right? Or hot and comforting. But this lukewarm stuff, that's where it's coming. Remember, that's, I will spit you out of my mouth. So I want you to know that this writer, Tim did a great job of going, look, these are foundational stones. This is what this is all about. And then verse 4 goes, bam. You need to know that if you are going to be one that stands up and says and, and publicly defames Christ, it is impossible for there to be repentance in that. You have to sit with that. Now, the writer knows they've said some really hard things. So in verse 7 it says this, For the land has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. For land that has drunk the rain. So the rain comes down. Here's what's interesting. The rain is going to be the constant. The ground is going to be the constant. The difference is what comes out of those two exchanges. For the land that has drunk rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, nothing changed about the dirt, nothing changed about the rain, but what was produced was different. So now we're talking heart. If the gospel is given to someone and out of it becomes life, then there's life. But out of it becomes thorns and thistles, that's the issue. But if it bears thorns, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Is to be burned. Now, by the way, agriculturally, you could plant a crop where all of a sudden you would have thorns and thistles grow up, and they would burn that land, by the way, and in doing so, next year they could actually have a good crop. But in this context, saying, look, the rain is coming down. What, is, what are you producing? That's where it's coming from. And this is, this is hard stuff. Like God's going, look, I am raining down on you blessings. And in that, are you blessing out? Verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have a full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So there's this big heaviness but he turns and goes, but with you, we are watching basically good come out of this ground. We are watching you bless. We are watching you serve. We are watching you do exactly what we think you should be doing. 
But it ends with this, verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Okay. So again, this just jumps into the deep end of the pool, goes, wow, what about those who have just stood in contrast to Christ, who once tasted it, but now have made a mockery of it, but turns and says, wait a minute, but we know of you, beloved. You are walking in this direction. You are keeping your focus right. And that becomes significant. Because in doing so, when we keep our focus right, when we are looking at what happens, it changes not only the now, but the future that we're going to live. So, in verse 13, we have this. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. So God meets with Abraham, says, you are going to be the father of many generations, and he swore by his own self because there was nothing greater than him. How many of you guys have ever been like, I swear by, you pick something, right, strong, bold, that you can rely on. God goes, I got nothing above me. It's me. So when he promised to Abraham, he said, since no one was greater to whom he swore, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And so he looks to Abraham and gives him a promise. And this is what he's saying to people of Hebrews. Look, God gives promises. And by the way, he stands behind his promises because he, he literally is saying, look, I am saying on my life, look what it goes on. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now, by the way, I hope you guys are doing the readings. One of the things that's hard about this is that um, Abraham was promised and then it became years before he had his son. Years before Isaac comes along. But he waited patiently. And people go like, wait a minute. He didn't wait that patiently because we have Ishmael. Uh, That gets into a whole conversation with him and his wife, by the way. And I don't have time to unpack all of that this morning. But I want to say to you that at the end, when when Abraham understood, wait a minute, I messed up, he still trusted that God could be faithful. And he was. Verse 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves and, and, all, and in all their disputes, an oath is, is a final confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly, here we go, now this is getting into Jesus. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So this writer is trying to say, look, God came along and gave another promise. He cannot lie. He made a promise just like he made to Abraham. And here is the hope we have set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Okay, now we're getting into priestly stuff. Only one person was allowed to go into that inner place, and that was a priest. And he's saying this, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Here we go where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
Okay. So what's happening is, is that chapter 6 is really this trans, kind of this, this, this transition from, listen, let's deal with the fact that those who speak in against God, it's impossible for them to have repentance. And yet, for you, we're seeing you, we're watching you grow, we're watching you do this, but he's going to have to deal with this priest issue. Because you have to understand, I, I don't even, it's been so hard for me to grasp. I'm not Jewish. So let's do this. I, I am American. I want you to imagine that someone comes along and says, hey, by the way, we're going to give you a new direction, and it's not the Constitution. Now, if I'm just pure American, love you know, apple pie and Chevrolet kind of a deal, I'm not going to let you mess with the Constitution. Does that make sense? But if, I am, if you are going to mess with the Constitution, you better be able to show me how whatever you're bringing on is better. That is what this writer is tackling. He's coming along going, hey, got it. You have a priestly system. I'm telling you, I'm not bringing you a, a priest that is at equal with what you have. I'm bringing you a priest that is greater than what you have. I'm not bringing you a, a, a substitute. I'm bringing you the head part of this. And so when he comes along and says he is a high priest Forever after the order of Melchizedek, he's trying to say, listen, you need to trust me that when Jesus comes on and is our high priest, it's better than what the Levites were doing. By the way, very difficult for the Jews to let go of. You are now getting into the core of who they are, their whole system, how they establish themselves, and this was not easy. And so again, for us Gentiles, we're like, what's the big deal? Again, it's changing almost the very DNA structure of how they saw themselves in their society. We have a temple. We have high priests. We have a priestly system. We have sacrifices. We have all this. And the writer saying, Jesus is better than, better than, better than. Better than the angels. Better than Moses. Yes, he's the better high priest. And again, even if the writer can prove it, it doesn't mean it's going to be easy for the Jews to let go of their system. Does that make sense? We don't let go of old systems well, right? We just don't. You can show me how things are better and still it's like, yeah, but I like the old system. I knew the old system. I understood the old system. That's what they're fighting against here. So let's see what happens with Melchizedek. Now you're in chapter 7. Hebrews 7, 1 through 28. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, and I told you this a little while back, remember, Salem, Jerusalem, they believe that when, when um, Abraham came into this area, he's actually in the area where Jerusalem would be, that God had established this priest in this area, by the way, very much connected to where the Holy of Holies would be. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is, this is talking about Melchizedek, he is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also the king of Salem, that is a king of peace. Meaning, this is a pre-look at a priest that, by the way, reflects who Jesus is. King of, right? King of peace, right? And so the idea is this high priest would have been God's high priest. The Levites are man's priests. So what you have is he says, look, 
Verse 3, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Resembling the Son of God. So you need to understand something. What I love about God is that God sets up a system. Here we have the tribes. Out of the tribes, the Levites become the priests. Jesus, by the way, is born of the tribe of Judah. Okay, now we have a conflict. How are we going to reconcile this once we get to the time of Jesus? And the reality is the only way you reconcile it is you come up with something better than what was already there. So let's see what Scripture says. Verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. So you can look, Abraham was great, but Melchizedek was greater and was worthy for Abraham to give him a tenth. Okay? For time, we're going to jump down to verse 11. You can go back and read through this section. I'm not really skipping anything that will uh, change anything, but, but we got to get through the rest of these passages. Verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attained through the Levitical priesthood, here's the question. Hey, guys. If we could have pulled this off with Levitical priesthood, right? For under the law, people receive, I'm sorry, for under it, the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named in the order of Aaron? So, by the way, this author is taking on the issue. This is what the author is saying. Hey, look, if we could have pulled this off with Levi, there wouldn't be a need for another priest. But there is a flaw in the Levitical system. Look what happens. For when there is a change in, pre, in the priesthood, there's necessar- there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Okay, here we go. Verse 13. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. Right. The one we're talking about is Jesus who came from the tribe of Judah. Right? None of one from the tribe of Judah had ever dealt in the priestly system. For it was evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that, the tribe, uh, that, with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent— what you have is Melchizedek is not like my father, my grandfather, my great-grandfather is all from one tribe. That is not his requirement. So let me read it again, verse 16. Who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Remember, without genealogy, right? Never, that's the important thing. Look, Jesus is coming for something greater than, again, this Levitical system, where, by the way, all the Levites died. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, which is this. Jesus, when he steps up as a priest in the order of Melchizedek, he sets aside the Levitical system because it is weak compared to what Jesus is bringing. Just is. The Levitical system, based on sacrifice and all those things, all it did was roll back, roll back, roll back, roll back. It allowed for the people to have one more year with God, one more year with God, one more year with God. But Jesus comes along and his death on the cross 
when he made himself the sacrifice, he pays it all. Pays it all. So therefore, his sacrifice is better than that of the Levites. For the law made nothing perfect. You need to understand that. You can have the law, but the law didn't make anything perfect. All the law told you was what is right and what's wrong, and then people honestly just broke that law left and right. The law in itself is only these rules. So look what happens. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. A better hope. A better hope. And it was not without an oath. So you have, again, a, a law is, is, is made with an oath. Jesus, God made an oath on himself. Nothing greater. I, I will make this happen. Abraham, you will be the father of many nations. And it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made, such without, um, were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn, sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. He looks at Jesus and goes, you are a priest forever in the same way that Melchizedek was a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, for those of us who are on this side of the covenant, we're Gentiles, we've come in, we've accepted Jesus Christ, we understand him, we're going, yeah, we get it, we're on this side of the covenant. Again, you need to think of those who are on the other side of the covenant. He's now said, your covenant is useless. Your covenant, your sacrifices, your priestly system, your temple, it's not going to do it. And that is a huge blow to the Jewish people. Huge blow. Again, it defined them. It gave them their sense of who they were. God's chosen people. And yet, a better covenant comes. And by the way, Jesus doesn't wipe out the previous covenant. He fulfills that covenant. He paid the debt. He took on all of what that cost. And then comes a new covenant in his blood, which means when you come to communion, you are entering into that covenant of his body and his blood that was shed and he died for you to give you life. Because he's a better priest. He's a better priest because he gave a better sacrifice himself to give you a better hope of eternity, not just your sins being rolled back one more year, but to give you hope. Here we go. Verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, right? We needed another priest. Okay, you need another one because they're going to keep dying. We need another one, need another one. And that's why that bloodline was so important. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Jesus not only is our Savior, he's our high priest. And he holds that position. Um, consequently, he is able to save those to the utter, I'm sorry, to able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is interceding. Folks, I'm just telling you, I love the fact, I love the fact that Jesus sits next to God and, and God watches me and goes, Jeff did, and, I, and, and Jesus shakes his head and goes, yeah, but he's one of mine. But he, yep, 
Did you see? Yep, he's one of mine. Folks, can I, can I get an amen that we have a God that intercedes for us? Amen. Folks, we, we know how we mess up. And to know that I have a high priest that goes, because of my blood, Jeff is good. And again, that's why the blaspheme of that, that's why the, to publicly disgrace that is such a big issue, which is where we started today. Verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Verse 27, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins and then those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. We don't need that system anymore. We don't need a temple where people are bringing in sacrifices. They're useless. They can't do anything close to Jesus coming and giving himself as a sacrifice. They can't. They're just nothing. And finally, verse 28. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. The book of Hebrews is a writer trying to tackle one of the biggest issues to the people who had been born Jews who came to Christ is that they are wrestling through, okay, Jesus is here, but how do I do this? Because I have this Levite system, and I have this temple system, and I have this sacrifice system. And the writer is saying this, he's better than. He's greater than. And here's why. He's not from Levi. He's from Judah, but he was given by God to be the order of the line of Melchizedek, which means he is higher than. He, is, he doesn't need to make sacrifices over and over again. He doesn't need to do this because once and for all, he took care of it and established it. That's why the veil tears when he dies, because it was done. There's no need to go back into the Holy of Holies. So what does this mean for us What does this mean for us today as Gentiles? Listen, the book of Hebrews, for those who are reading it, was powerful to help them move the needle to go to this place of like, okay, this is going to be difficult. But for us who are Gentiles, this is what we need to know. What we need to know is that we stand with a God who sent his son to give us access to the kingdom. Gave us access to the kingdom. And by the way, we Gentiles... We who couldn't even come into that inner circle get to run and jump on our Father's lap because of what Christ did. I get to call him Dad. I don't have to come with my head down. I get to come with my head up. I get to come in. And as a Gentile, yeah, I'm not into all, I wasn't into all of this system and I wasn't defined by my lineage and I wasn't defined by my bloodline. I wasn't defined by all the things I memorized. But I do get to come in because of the faith I have in Jesus Christ and get to be called one of his kids. And that's powerful. And that's significant.
Jesus is greater. In all these areas, he is greater. Here's the thing I want you to know. I want you to fall in love with Jesus. Jesus. He's the one that is worth it. He's the one that is the more powerful. And he is the one that gives us hope. Starting this week, we start the next week. It's called Christ's Greater Covenant. We're going to dig into the covenant that he establishes when he died on the cross. By the way, the better covenant than was put together through Abraham. Do you see how this is all blocking out? Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. Jesus is better than the priest. And he brought about a better covenant. And that's what you're going to tackle this week if you do the reading plan. And that's what we're going to look at next week when we unpack it. I just want you to see that we're in the book of Hebrews so that we Gentiles can see there was a full plan this whole time that God goes, no, I got this. But let's never, ever take lightly what this meant for the Jewish people, how hard they had to move because their identity is being changed. The very structure of who they are is being unraveled. And we cannot take that lightly because we wouldn't, it would be hard for us if that was happening to us as well. But this writer is trying to build a case that we can stand on firmly. So I hope you'll do the reading plan. It will help you to get into next week's message and you'll be more ready for what we're going to tackle when we look at the new covenant that is a part of this whole process. So let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Jesus, you are greater. You just are. And Father, because of you and the hope we have in you, we can stand and know. And so Father, I just ask that you would, um, Father, just, just bless us as we kind of step into that. I pray for our Jewish brothers and sisters who, Father, for so many of them, their identity in them being Jewish keeps them from seeing your son as the Messiah. It's such a hard thing for them to see that you are the answer, that you are the better high priest, that you are greater than Moses, that you are better than the angels. Father, be with them, that their eyes can be open, that they can see that you are the answer they've been looking for for their entire existence. And we ask for that. You are a good God, and I give you this day, in Jesus' name, amen.